Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's Christmas time. Before the Civil War, Christmas in the North and South were quite different. But for a century and a half after the Civil War, Christmas in the Old South was portrayed in popular culture as a happy season of celebration, gift-giving, and time off from work for the grateful enslaved workers as well as for their kindly and benevolent masters. Was that what was really happening? Professor Robert E. May suggests there was more to that picture than meets the eye. In Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory, we'll talk about that book with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, as has been the case for some months now, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, just down the road from ECU, East Carolina University, where I work remotely these days, but not speaking for ECU or for anyone else. And my guest, likewise, will speak only for himself tonight, as we always do here. Today is the 11th day of the 11th month. It's November 11, 2020, uh, Veterans Day, a day to remember the sacrifice of Americans who served their country. And I know Anyone listening to this show fully appreciates all that that means. Uh, Well, we had no live show last week. It's it's uh, we were last here two weeks ago, uh, so at the end of October, and it is of course astonishing how things have changed in those two weeks. Uh, The 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 journey from confidence and victory to humiliating defeat, exposure of weakness, the looming end of a leader who was once expected to clean house and bring greatness back 
But uh, enough about Michigan football and Jim Harbaugh. We are here tonight to talk about Civil War history. What we actually, I, I do want to say something uh, roundabout about the election that just passed. Uh, here on Civil War Talk Radio, we talk about books, and there are hundreds of Civil War books published every year. I can't keep up with all of them. Uh, I'm sure you can't either. It's a you have to choose some, leave others behind. For this show, I try to choose ones from different sources. Some are ones that you've suggested in emails to me. Others get sent to me by publishers or suggested to me by agents. Sometimes authors contact me directly. Sometimes I'll read about something in a book review or an online discussion and, and look at it that way. Uh, in the old days, I would just browse the stacks and join our library on ECU's campus and see a new book that I hadn't seen before and pull that off. In deciding what books we will talk about, there are a lot of ways to evaluate the uh, book on the Civil War. Is it entertaining? Is it well-written? Is it insightful? Is it historically accurate? Uh, one standard I apply to the books that we talk about on this show is that in most cases, I would like to know more about the Civil War era after I'm done than I did when I started, which is one reason why we don't do much historical fiction here. Not that it's badly written. In fact, frequently Civil War novels are entertaining and insightful, but I can't be confident when I'm done that I know any more about the war than I did when I started. I know more about what the author thinks about the war, but without the reference notes, without the, the sources, I, I can't be sure that I've actually learned anything. As, and indeed, good fiction is more dangerous and seductive than bad history because I can recognize bad history. But good fiction lures me into thinking, ah, now I know what that guy was thinking when the author is not has no sources to rely on. So we don't do a lot of fiction. Um, there are exceptions to the idea that I only want to talk about books where I will learn something because there are familiar stories like Gettysburg or anything about Lincoln that will have a hard time teaching anyone listening to this show something new. We've already read a lot on those topics. But sometimes there's a book for a general audience and uh, you know aimed at people who haven't read a ton about Gettysburg. And if it's well-written and accurate and engaging, they can be on the show as well. Which brings me to the election uh, that just passed, the presidential election of 2020. I'm aware that Civil War talk radio listeners are divided politically, just as the nation is divided politically. I know that some of you uh, voted for the current president last week, perhaps because of his tax policy or immigration policy or tariff policy or coronavirus policy. A few of you who did that, however, I would guess, did so because you approve of his, his rhetoric, his use of words. Uh, nobody on either side of the political divide mistakes uh, the president's oral expressions or 280-character tweets for the, uh, the second inaugural address or the House Divided speech. But last week when I was at the polls handing out flyers for local uh, state House candidate, I saw a banner for the president that said, uh, had the slogan, because actions speak louder than words. 
and that made the point. It's not a deal breaker for his supporters. The president's words, his, his rhetoric are generally not aesthetically pleasing or sophisticated or uplifting uh, or closely aligned with facts in many cases. They have different virtues. They're not meant to do those things. They are transactionally powerful. They are intended solely to advance the president's interests. They often outrage his opponents, and that outrage in turn delights many of his supporters. So supporters can endorse the president uh, because of his actions without paying attention to his words, but my life and my world are based on words. Civil War talk radio is based on words. History is based on words. As the example of Lincoln shows, words can embody leadership even more effectively and long-lastingly than mere actions. And when I teach my students to write history, I measure their efforts by how closely their written words correspond to the historical evidence that I require them to provide. So it's been difficult to be a subject for four years to public rhetoric, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that openly disdains evidence or truth or elegance or grammar in favor of the single measure of how effective is this at getting one's way. Now, if I were hiring an ad agency, I might consider it appropriate to use words in that fashion. But as a professor, I don't let my students use words in that fashion. And as a parent, I didn't let my children use words in that fashion when I was raising them. And last week, I did not vote for a leader who uses words in that fashion. So that's all. I don't want to say much more. I try to keep political views out of this show, as you know. But when politics intersects with the essence of what history is, it's not always possible. I hope you will let me have that space. Some of you I've had long-running correspondences with, uh, and we don't agree on politics, but we've become friends anyway, and I, I hope we can continue to accept each other, uh, whether our views on politics coincide or not. And on the other hand, if, if there are any listening, and I, I would doubt this, but if there is anyone listening who absolutely cannot tolerate hearing any political expression they don't agree with, you can go ahead and launch a boycott against my paid sponsors. Uh, well, you could if I had any paid sponsors, so that's not going to work. You could um, cut off your donations to the show. Those are flowing in at a rate that allows me to purchase a sandwich at Mike's Deli every week in the pre-COVID era or a bottle of Knob Creek bourbon every month in the pandemic era. And I very much appreciate that, believe me. Uh, but it's not what keeps the show going, so that's not going to work. Um, there, Really, all I can suggest is just let me have this little space and hope that we can go four years without having to return to modern presidential politics as a discussion topic on the show. So let's move on. Uh, looking ahead, before we plunge back to the 19th century, no live show for the next two weeks, unfortunately. Next week is exams here at East Carolina University. I will be grading the final exams in our absurd block schedule that we've turned to. We have not had a break since early August and crammed everything in, and so we'll be able to end the semester before Thanksgiving as a result. Uh, I will say the students are burned out, and I think the faculty are too. Uh, no show on the 25th, Thanksgiving week, but we will be back with uh, Tim Smith 
his new book on the uh, Grant's attacks on Pemberton at Vicksburg uh, will be our guest on December 2nd. And on December 9th, Kenneth Noe's new book, The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War, will be our topic. Steve Barry, who was to have been on last week, will be back on January 13, 2021, starting out the new season. And you can always keep up with who's on next by going to impedimentsofwar.org on the internet, where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date, and where you can continue to fund the uh, send your donations to the Sandwich and Bourbon and occasionally book fund of Civil War Talk Radio. Donate through PayPal when you get there. Well, I've talked too long. Let's bring on Robert E. May, Professor Emeritus of History at Purdue University and the author of Yuletide and Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. Professor May, are you there? I am here, and I appreciate being on your program. Well, thanks. Uh, Welcome to the show. I'm glad we're able to work this out. I've certainly enjoyed reading this book. It's slightly off the beaten track for Civil War Talk Radio, but... uh, well, it's such an interesting topic. What what brought you to writing about uh, Christmas in Dixie? Well, I started reading a lot of references to practices in Southern slaveholding households uh, regarding both uh, the slaveholders and their enslaved people, their their house servants, especially when I was when I did my biography of. John Anthony Quibman. Now, he's not a man most of your listeners have probably heard of, but they should have, because uh, he was the most important secessionist in Mississippi. He was the most radical person in Mississippi for getting that state out of the Union. Of course, it eventually became the second state to secede. He was more radical than Jefferson Davis. At any rate, uh, I I ran into all these very interesting references to what happened in, in his household, on his plantations, because he owned several of them uh, on Christmas Eve and on Christmas morning and so on and so forth. And uh, that that sort of uh, alerted me. And then I I taught Southern history and Civil War history at Purdue University for about 40 years and uh, kept reading. And, And now all of a sudden, as I was reading books, I was looking for that stuff. So instead of just flipping over it, I would start taking notes and I built up a a real backlog of notes on the topic. And then when I finished my last book uh, several years ago about Lincoln and Douglas and Latin America, uh, I I thought, oh, I'd I'd like to work on this and and really see where it takes me. And so uh, this book was the end product of a process that's been going on really a couple of decades. So you came across these references, as you say, in the course of looking for other things. Are there... What kind of sources are there once you're focused on Christmas in the Old South? Uh, where, where do you that, go that's for a really, Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think we all would assume, first of all, that whatever sources we have uh, are going to be white sources, because white sources are literate sources. <laughs> African-American enslaved people were purposely denied all ability, if possible, to to learn to read or write, because uh, there was a danger in that. And there were even laws in many of the southern states prohibiting 
uh, teaching enslaved people to read or write. Uh, if they could read or write, they might see abolitionist propaganda from the North or even discussions in uh, Southern uh, printed media excuse me, about um, slavery and perhaps criticisms of it. And so uh, you, you might assume that there would be no black sources. But in fact, uh, a major share of my documents and, and, and what I read on this uh, came from African-Americans. Now, there are two primary uh, loads, you might say, of, of African-American materials on slavery. The, the first load, and I'm not saying there aren't others, because there's folklore, there's oral history, and, or uh, uh, literature, poetry, and things like that that came, came about later. Uh, but, but the first real load, a lot of stuff, uh, was before the Civil War, in the decades before the Civil War, when a lot of enslaved people, as we know, ran away to the North. And uh, that's, that's why you had so much controversy over the fugitive slave law uh, that, that helped bring on the Civil War. And uh, they get to the North, and uh, they, they often become literate. Uh, Frederick Douglass is the perfect example of that. Uh, and uh, they eventually, sometimes with the help of abolitionists, uh, publish their autobiographies of what it was like to be enslaved in the South. One of the most famous ones your, your listeners are probably familiar with, because it was made into a famous movie. Uh, a few years ago, 12 Years a Slave, Solomon Northup. Mm -hmm. Now, he was born free in New York, but he went south, and uh, he, was, he was kidnapped into slavery. And he was uh, enslaved for some 12 years in Louisiana. And uh, at any rate, he talked about Christmas. And these, these uh, narratives that, that enslaved people wrote, Frederick Douglass wrote three of them, and uh, Douglass talked about Christmas in his narrative. So you have a lot of uh, black sources uh, that you can go to before the Civil War. And then the second real load came many, many decades Actually, later. The let, let me, let me, me step yeah, in. Go ahead, Jerry. It, it, yeah. If I could, uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll keep our listeners in suspense sure. for that second source okay. of we'll African-American testimony. We'll be right back after we take a short break talking today with Robert E. May, author of Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. 
Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Robert E. May, author of Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. We were talking about the sources of this book, both the, uh, especially the black sources of the book, uh, slaves who escaped to the north and, and gave their memoirs, uh, often in the, to the cause of abolition. Uh, but Bob, you said there's a, another source that you use to, to develop the black experience here. Yes, and that source uh, came in the 1930s when, of course, we were suffering the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt was president. Roosevelt, as most of your listeners know, created a lot of work programs just to put people to work at fairly minimum wage jobs. And uh, one of the programs was the Federal Writers Project, which uh, put unemployed writers to work. And uh, the, the Writers Project went into the South and took transcriptions of interviews with still-living ex-slaves. Now, most of these uh, enslaved people were now, they, they were long free, and they were in their 80s or 90s, and they gave their accounts of slave times. And uh, so these are, uh, there are, there are some 3,000 of these interviews, and they've been collected in a wonderful uh, three-section and uh, set of books uh, by uh, 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 George Rowick and uh, Purdue's library uh, has all, all of them, and it was just a wonderful source to uh, get black perspectives on their enslavement. And, and it's, it's shocking how many of them mention Christmas in one form or another, their experiences on Christmas, either as household servants or as field hands, or uh, even in other capacities. Um, so those were the main sources. And mm-hmm. But um, I'd, I'd say just as important were the what, what we might call the white sources on Christmas in, in slave times. And I'd say the most important sources I had were records generated by the planters themselves. Uh, these would be their diaries. Some very famous Southerners kept diaries. The most famous uh, Virginia secessionist, uh, Edmund Ruffin, the man reputed to have fired the first shot on Fort Sumter, kept an incredibly detailed, rich diary that's uh, just just a joy to read. Uh, it's very informative. Uh, and um, uh, it's been published in three volumes, edited by William Scarborough. Uh, and there are uh, many, many other diaries like that. There are plantation journals where they kept logs, what went on on a daily basis on the plantations. Uh, there's an overseer's journal 
that was edited and published some years ago that was very helpful. And uh, so then there are the plantation records, but then Southern newspapers uh, are a wonderful source. And, and I used a wide number of Southern newspapers. They were particularly rich uh, on the slave insurrection panics that uh, Yuletide and Dixie spends a whole chapter on because uh, Christmas was a time of year when paradoxically uh, not only were masters giving their slaves presents, but they were also afraid for various reasons that we can get into, uh, that their enslaved people would, would rise up in rebellion. And then there were travelers' accounts, uh, and, uh, and and so you've got that. You've got novels written by Southerners at the time. You've got uh, magazine propaganda and uh, uh, agricultural journals, sometimes published articles on how you should treat your slaves over Christmas. And, and then uh, Europeans came and, and left accounts, uh, so you have uh, Europeans coming, but Northerners too. Uh, sometimes they came down to the South to become tutors on the plantation, and they uh, wrote back to the North about their observations. Uh, so uh, the, the sources, there are almost too many sources, to be honest. Uh, it, it, it's far more than most uh, listeners would ever expect. Well, you mentioned Northerners coming to visit. One of the things you point out in this book is that uh, the northern tradition descended from the Puritans, the, the dour, uh, all pray, all work Puritans don't have time for Christmas and they don't celebrate Christmas uh, much in the north, uh, especially in New England, uh, as compared to the south. Did Chris, what did Christmas look like in, in the south in terms of things we would expect? Are there, are there trees? Are there gifts? Are there, is there Santa Claus? What? Can you give us yeah, sort of I think that's a great, great, great question. And you're absolutely right in the colonial period, especially when uh, there were far more Puritans as a percentage of New England's population than later when mm-hmm. other groups moved into New England. Uh, the North, uh, it, was, it was Puritan tradition almost to banish Christmas. It had been banished for a while in England and uh, when the Puritans ruled there. So, uh, yes, uh, the South celebrated Christmas more, although the North was catching up. Uh, mm-hmm. It was fairly similar in some ways by the time of the Civil War. But yes, uh, Southern celebrations of Christmas in many ways would look familiar today. That is to say, uh, wealthy Southerners, uh, white Southerners went into Southern cities and went shopping at the various shops to buy gifts and candy and toys and stuff like that. Uh, Christmas trees did not start in the South. They were brought in first Middle colonies had a lot to do with the German settlers in Pennsylvania, but uh, those German settlers, as we know, uh, you know, and, uh, filtered down through the, especially through the uh, Appalachian Mountains, and, and came into the South. And uh, traditions came into the South too. So you had Christmas trees throughout the South by the Civil War. In fact, sometimes uh, enslaved people got their presents off of Christmas trees. They were allowed to pick things off of the Christmas trees, uh, and. Um, they also uh, celebrated Santa Claus. So if you read the, the diary, for instance, uh, of uh, John Quitman's daughter, Rosalie, uh, she talks about Kris Kringle and uh, how she's excited about what he might bring on Christmas morning and so so on and so forth. So in many ways, uh, Christmas was similar today, a lot of evergreen decoration and that sort of thing uh, and, and church going. 
but uh, on the other hand, what was totally different was, of course, uh, slavery. That's what made right. uh, Christmas quite distinct in the South. And the enslaved people uh, were part of these celebrations, both in positive and negative senses. And I, I think uh, the, the positive ones are pretty obvious, so you can find accounts of uh, enslaved people joining the white family circle and present distributions uh, and that sort of thing, um, uh, saying prayers together, uh, and then in social occasions over Christmas, coming up to the mansion's porches to witness fireworks, and certainly the gift-giving was a big deal. And uh, in, the, in the case of the, the field hands, uh, the field hands on many places were marched up to the what they called the big house where the rich mm-hmm. white owners lived. And uh, there were formal ceremonies in which the, the enslaved people came up one at a time, uh, received their gift, and went through certain ritualistic behaviors that they were expected to do. They were supposed to bow or curtsy and express appreciation uh, for their uh, for their gifts. That, so the that was the, uh, you might say, the positive side of it all. And in some of the pro-slavery propaganda, um, both before and after the Civil War, this gift-giving ritual was uh, a big thing in which Southerners, white Southerners, uh, claimed that the slaves were so grateful for their gifts and thankful that um, uh, if Northern abolitionists uh, could just come down uh, if Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, Uncle Tom's Cabin could just go down to the South and and see how happy slaves were over Christmas and how much they appreciated what they got. <laughs> they uh, they they would stop being abolitionists, basically. So that was uh, one side of it. And then the other side of it was that Christmas could be a, a rather <clears throat> horrific time. Uh, there are cases in the South, and not just a few, where... Uh, we have documentary evidence that uh, enslaved people were literally given as gifts, as property, to new family members over Christmas, or perhaps they were taken by a slave trader across state lines to a new household and delivered as a Christmas uh, gift on Christmas morning to some member of the family that bought them. Uh, so there's some pretty scary or... Uh, uh, very depressing aspects of, of Christmas. There are slaves who were tortured over Christmas. There were enslaved people uh, who were uh, whipped, uh, who were deprived of their presence because perhaps they didn't pick enough cotton or perhaps they s- spilled wine on the dress of uh, a white woman in the household or something like that. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of a dichotomy. Uh, you have uh, both joy and uh, horror and tragedy uh, now, over Christmas. You know, in, yeah. I say some of the, the, uh, the benevolence, <clears throat> the giving of gifts, um, that, that Frederick Douglass talks about this. He says one of the things that he recalled was having a, a week off from work and uh, you spend a fair amount of time discussing that that issue. Did did every slave get a week off? Did they get two days off? How how did that work out? Is it safe to say right. that the 
not to be reductive, but in most enslaved people did get some time off of work at the Christmas time. Is that a reasonable? I think, yeah. Yes, I, I think that assumption is probably true, although there's really no way to quantify it. But right. I would say a majority of enslaved people got some time off. Now, uh, according to myth, and I mm-hmm. go into this quite a bit in, in the book, uh, it was this myth that slaves got a week or two off, and so, white Southerners promoted it, and it was picked up by some uh, Yankees, both before and after the Civil War, and they might get a week off, they might get two weeks off, and that the time was calculated to the burning of the Yule Log, that is to say, uh, the enslaved people in a given household were given the right to go out into the woods and get a log, so they'd cut down the biggest log they could, hopefully it was very green, water-soaked, maybe it was lying in a creek somewhere, and they bring it into the house, and they could enjoy Christmas for as long as that log burned. Uh, the problem is I have not found evidence that this practice occurred before the Civil War. And um, I, I think when they used the term Yule Log before the Civil War, all the references I have seen is to English traditions of Yule Logs, along with mm-hmm. uh, the wassail bowl and boar's heads and things like that. Uh, it's the old English traditions, uh, not not uh, how enslaved people were given time off. Uh, and I think this myth came in after the Civil War primarily. But be that as it may, uh, the typical slave I found in using planters' journals, which said when the slaves went back to work. I mean, if the planters' journal says, I gave the slave Christmas off starting on Christmas Eve, and he was back at work, on December 28th, uh, first thing, uh, first dawn, uh, that, that enslaved person got three days off. And I found two to three days off common. Some enslaved people got only Christmas Day. Some enslaved people got no time off at all, uh, especially if the master was dissatisfied with the amount, with the quality or amount of work they had done either recently or over the course of the whole year. And uh, so it, it really varied. Uh, it varied on what crop they grew. Uh, sometimes there were things that had to be done on, on sugar crops around Christmas, and so the master would put it off until January. Uh, industrial slaves, there were, there were different. Uh, the South did have uh, uh, more industry than people remember, and mm-hmm. uh, they often employed slaves, and they had certain practices regarding industrial slaves and slaves who worked in, uh, on railroads and things like that. So to generalize is, is really uh, difficult. But what I, I would say that I think is, is quite significant is I found a number of cases where uh, masters resented giving their enslaved people time off, which shows that, uh, that the uh, blacks in a given household or on a given plantation could pressure of the master, especially if they work together as a group. And uh, the masters sometimes tried to cut back on the amount of, uh, of time off, and sometimes they talked in their private correspondence of uh, wanting to end the, the Christmas holiday altogether. And uh, the, the, the masters worried over the course of the holiday that slaves might rise up and, and uh, uh, slit their throats. And that, that wasn't the case every year, and it wasn't the case everywhere. Uh, by any means, but it was a more prevalent worry 
than I think most history books uh, show. And, and uh, I, I just go into a tremendous amount of detail on these because I think it is, it is significant that we don't get caught up in these myths that, that all slaves were happy over Christmas, that all masters were benign paternalists who knew their slaves were happy, and so on and, and so forth. Well, you, you know, Douglas in his memoir makes the point that, uh, as he saw it, the the uh, week off of time and the uh, partying that the slaves were allowed or sometimes required to indulge in, including alcohol consumption, he said was intended to disgust them with freedom, to make them equi- equate freedom with license and uh, to give them terrible hangovers and and make them sick from too much celebration so that they would be glad theoretically when they could get back to work and be in their old lives in other words there this is not done out of altruism that that this was a a form of manipulation yes exactly and and douglas wasn't the only one who talked about um uh alcohol being used uh as a form of uh debasement really uh get the slaves uh groveling uh get them inebriated uh and so on and then and then maybe even giving them a speech we've got one uh slave narrative in which the uh one time uh, enslaved person says that he uh, the, the master would then bring the, uh, the the enslaved people together in a group after they he had gotten them all drunk and they were often forced to drink or, or forced to fight each other or, or sing or whatever over the Christmas holiday. And, and uh, the master would then say to the slaves, now look, uh, you can see that you could never make it on your own if, if you weren't uh, helped by uh, people who know how to guide labor and care for you and give you rules to obey and so on and so forth. Uh, Solomon Northup is an interesting case because he, he just said flat out, yeah, we did enjoy that parting and we danced and we got married over Christmas because that was, uh, in some places, it was literally the only time of the year when, when slaves were allowed to get married. And, uh, they, and we have to remember that slaves didn't always live uh, together with the people that they were courting or married to. Mm. Uh, some, some owners, slave owners, owned several places. So at any rate, uh, Northrop said that was the only time of the year, and so we spent all our time uh, fiddling and dancing and singing and getting married when we should have been thinking about trying to escape. Uh, that, that point about fiddling brings up a question I have, uh, but I'm going to save that as we take another short break. We'll come back and return more to talk about Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. We're talking with the author of the book, Robert E. May. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. 
the Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Robert E. May, author of Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. Bob, the point about the dancing and partying that went on in many plantations in the references you cite, there's almost invariably an enslaved person providing the music, usually playing the fiddle. And that suggests that they, people in that situation must have had time to play more than once a year. I, I play the fiddle badly myself, and I probably get mine out once or twice a month, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not very good as a result. Uh, if they're going to get out and, and play this music that, that even the white people want to come and hear, uh, then there must have been a musical culture existing throughout the year. Uh, yes, that's, cause, that's, cause that's you, a good point. Yeah, it the, just struck um, me as an interesting uh, in, in implication of that, of the annual Christmas dancing and, and playing. Yeah, and in some cases, the uh, uh, their uh, owners actually went out and got them the instruments. Some of the instruments, I'm sure, were handmade and uh, based on African traditions. Uh, but they played drums, they played banjos, they, they played other kinds of uh, instruments, percussion especially. And um, they uh, uh, they not only played at their own, what they called frolics and Christmas, Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, were often underwritten by their owners, but uh, sometimes uh, they were brought up to the uh, the big house and, and played at the master's more formal balls. So they obviously had to have some skill. And sure. uh, I've seen a few references to them practicing uh, beforehand, uh, to them practicing at other times of the year. Uh, I, I haven't seen that much on it. And right. so I don't know what kind of a regimen. Their, their days, certainly, if you were a field hand, your uh, <laughs> you days were excruciatingly hard. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, so I don't know ask, that I know that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask an, another question, something I really enjoyed reading about in this book, uh, because it was something I had not heard much about till moving here to eastern North Carolina, was the the uh, the John Canoe celebrations, the which 
are carried on today at, at Tryon Palace, the uh, uh, History Center in, in New Bern, North Carolina. They do an annual John Canoe uh, procession, and they do workshops in the summer where they were kids come and learn to play and learn to drum and to, to do the things that will be part of the parade. But this is one, I think it's the only example that you found of a, an African tradition really surviving in the new world under slavery, uh, an African Christmas tradition or holiday tradition. Could you talk about, uh, about that? Yes. Yes. The, uh, the book, uh, has one chapter devoted to two traditions. One of them, as you suggest or imply, was more of a white tradition, uh, although blacks may have started it, this game of Christmas gift that yes. uh, blacks challenged uh, the uh, you know their owners on Christmas morning. Uh, whoever could say Christmas, uh, Merry Christmas first or Christmas gift first uh, mm-hmm. on Christmas morning, uh, the other person had to give you a, a present and uh, uh, there's some indications that blacks may have started it. Um, whatever, we don't really know the origins, but we know it was very widespread, and we know that uh, the enslaved people usually won this game, probably won it, if I had to guess, 95% of the time, because uh, it was sort of a psychological game that allowed masters to concede ground, to give uh, their enslaved people temporary victory, a one up and mm-hmm. for one day of the year. And uh, that helped uh, defuse tension in the system. And so I spent half the chapter on that. But you're absolutely right. John Canoe gets the other half. And it went under uh, all sorts of other names, John Cooner, John Coonering, uh, and so on. And it was this idea that you would have a a black-generated procession that would come outside the house, would... Uh, it might start on a neighboring plantation or if you're in an urban area. And it was almost, it was, it was uh, from what I can tell, at least 90 to 95% uh, located in North Carolina uh, mm-hmm. along the coast. Uh, I don't think it penetrated much of the rest of the South. But uh, they would start a procession, and it was, it was virtually all male, although some males might dress uh, in uh, other other. Uh, gendered uh, outfits, and uh, they'd go along uh, in these weird uh, costumes uh, with with horns, tatters, strings, and, and strips of cloth hanging down from them, and uh, uh, just just weird, weird clothing, and uh, they'd, they'd be beating drums and other percussion, and uh, they'd sing songs, uh, some of them somewhat cynical about, sometimes somewhat cynical about white people, and they they mm-hmm. they would get to the uh, the door of the uh, of the mansion or a white household and and uh, demand money. And, uh, they would, um, and we're not talking big bucks, but it was a little bit intimidating. And, and the book goes into, uh, some of the more intimidating aspects of it. And we don't know a lot about exactly how it got into North Carolina, except we know that North Carolina had several port areas, uh, that, uh, traded with the West Indies. And so this tradition may have come directly uh, from uh, the tribal traditions in, Af- in Western Africa. Uh, it may have come directly to North Carolina, but it may have also come via the, the British West Indies because mm-hmm. we know it was a very vibrant tradition in, in, uh, in the British West Indies. 
It, it, I mean, it has echoes, obviously, of even modern trick-or-treating, but all kinds of other uh, social inversion and, and costume celebrations, uh, you know, the souling. Exactly. Or mummers or the, the parading the wren from house to house in England. All it just, just really fascinating to see that uh, uh, surviving there. Uh, now, the biggest example, though, of, of black agency is actually doesn't even isn't even conducted by uh, by the enslaved people themselves. It takes place in the minds of their owners. And you said this at the very beginning of the show. There's an almost constant fear that the enslaved will choose Christmas as the time to rise up and revolt. And so you have the militia being called uh, out on Christmas. Uh, t- how, how did, right. Why did they think that? Okay, so. Uh, you've, you've got, uh, the, the whites are partying like mad at Christmas. Uh, their, their guard is down. They're, uh, they're occupied with their own balls. They have visitors, uh, relatives, uh, neighbors coming in for huge parties if, if you're wealthy. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, because Christmas was a time when blacks were given freedom not only to party at their own places, but if they had relatives or friends on other plantations, they could go there. They were given passes to travel uh, nearby or, or even fairly far away in some cases, as long as they got back within a few days. Uh, they were given passes to go into nearby cities or, or towns uh, to party, uh, and they could mix with free blacks uh, over, over the holiday because uh, southern urban centers had considerable a free black populations weren't owned by anyone. And uh, there they'd have a model of agency, of course, every time they interacted with uh, African-Americans who were free. Uh, so they have all this time on their hands. Uh, whites are preoccupied. And there's a whole history of slave revolts at Christmas that comes uh, out of Latin America because those societies had a lot of Christmas time revolts for some of the same reasons. Uh, and uh, the colonial period had had Christmas re- revolts, and so uh, this this history is is in the in the background. The ironic thing is that the Old South, which is what we refer to, you know, the the South in the decades leading up to the Civil War, it didn't have a single major Christmas revolt. All the real Christmas revolts. Uh, happened uh, in the colonial period or in, in Latin America. Nat Turner occurred in the summer. But there was uh, enough of a connection uh, that that uh, Southerners were worried. That, and, and year after year, they predicted, oh, this will be the year when there will be the, the major uprising. So at times of particular tension and uh, times when uh, abolitionism was particularly strong in one way or another, uh, when you have abolitionist agency uh, and uh, Southerners are on their guard, uh, to give an example, in 1830, after the uh, one-time uh, uh, slave and, and northern free black, David Walker published his famous appeal, which even brought up the idea of a black uprising, uh, you know, a, a Christmas later, uh, you have a, a serious insurrection panic. And in 1835, when uh, the abolitionists in the North started their famous uh, abolition campaign to uh, abolish slavery in Washington, flooded the South with pamphlets and and so on against slavery, uh, you had a major slave rebellion rumor 
uh, the slaves were all going to rise up uh, in, uh, in on Christmas Day, and that it was all being generated by a, a, a guy in slave or, or uh, imprisoned in the Tennessee penitentiary. Uh, and uh, it's it's uh, but it's remarkable. You'd have these insurrection panics. Uh, you'd have patrols sent out. Uh, you'd have blacks rounded up in advance of Christmas. You'd have executions. You'd have tortured confessions by prisoners that would implicate others. Uh, even some whites were executed who were suspected of being in on it. And yet not one actual revolt. And, and, and the irony uh, the, that uh, I point to in the book is that the real problem uh, should have been trying to prevent uh, their slaves from running away because the real resistance over Christmas was people using the holiday, the distractions of whites, uh, to escape. And some of the most famous slaves uh, escaped over uh, Christmas. Henry Bibb, for instance, escaped over Christmas. Uh, the uh, You had uh, uh, Harriet Tubman rescuing three of her brothers over Christmas and, and so on. So a, a lot of slaves ran away, despite the fact that it was extremely cold, uh, they obviously wouldn't be able to escape with huge suitcases full of stuff. Uh, they're going to be on the lamb. Uh, they might have to cross rivers. It's, it's, it's a tough time of the year. Uh, and, uh, and yet they're, they're running away at Christmas. So you've got this, this paranoia about uh, rebellion, even though it does not happen. You point out this even happens as late as 1865 after the war. Um, I'm going to leave it to our readers to our, our listeners to uh, read this book and, and read your chapter on how the war itself affects these traditions of gift giving and uh, the interaction between the two. In in just uh, the final minute that we have, you write about how today the, the memories that, that entered uh, popular culture in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s of everybody being happy at Christmas, the enslaved also, have taken out of, of memory anything anything negative about the slave experience at Christmas. And even today, if you go to plantations, they have Christmas events, which mean to make money, so they don't make people unhappy. Uh, they don't talk much about slavery at Christmas even today. I'm starting to see that change myself. That like I mentioned the John Canoe events at Tryon Palace is one example. Um, do you think there's a chance that, that uh, plantation sites in the South will begin to tell the story that you tell more in the future? Yes, I think definitely. And I think this year is kind of a break. I'm, from what I'm seeing online, I think a lot of the... Typical Christmas celebrations have been canceled this year. And when you mm -hmm. put that on top of Black Lives Matter, uh, my final chapter does discuss uh, not only the places which have had these traditional things, which I think have perpetuated stereotypes in our mm -hmm. culture that, it, that slavery wasn't so bad. Uh, right. Slaves were happy at Christmas and so on. But I, I, I mentioned some that were in the process of changing even before COVID struck. And I would predict with Black Lives Matter and the pressures to rename things and mm -hmm. uh, tear down monuments, uh, I think these kinds of presentations, unless they're 
sensitive and start talking about what an enslaved person really did over Christmas, what he thought about, what was happening to him, and what Christmas meant, and that he didn't have any choice. He didn't get to choose to end bondage and give up Christmas, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, unless they start dealing with these things seriously, um, I can't imagine this going on forever because they're, these, those kinds of sites are going to come under serious pressure in the coming years. I, I think that's that's very likely to be accurate. I would agree with that. Well, I wish we had more time to discuss it, but we don't. Time is fleeting. Christmas is approaching. It's already November 11th. Uh, listeners, you can find out more about this, a story that, as I said at the beginning of the show, I like to read something or I learn something, and I learn something on every page from this. It was all new. Yuletide in Dixie. Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory by our guest tonight, Robert E. May. Bob, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jerry. I've been delighted to be there and to talk to you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.